Welcome to the 1110 Leadership Podcast, where we tackle issues at the intersection of leadership, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Rob Shields, Vice President of Strategy at 1110 Leadership, and I'm joined by my co-host, founder and CEO of 1110 Leadership, David Spicker. Proverbs 1110 lays out a bold and countercultural vision. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. We're here to ask, what does it look like practically to be this type of leader? Leaders willing to invest everything they have so that everyone around them can thrive. Join us on the journey as we lean in, listen, and learn how to become Proverbs 1110 kind of leaders. The kind of leaders that make our cities rejoice. David. Hello, Rob. How are we doing? I'm good. I'm good today. You're good today. Mm-hmm. You were great before. Good feels like a, a downgrade. Well, I'm feeling positive and <laughs> I've, I've got energy today, so maybe it's better than good. There we go. I want to put your feet to the fire. I mean, I want to have the freedom to be as honest as you need to be, but I think we're both really excited about today's special episode of the podcast. We're, yes. This is a first for us, our first ever crossover episode. I feel like we should insert some type of sound effect if we were really fancy right now, you know, a lightning yeah. bolt. <laughs> a clanging gong, something. I don't know. Because we're, um, high, we're, we're pretty high tech over here. Because that is, that is the way we operate, all the bells and whistles here at, at the 1110 Leadership Podcast. But in all seriousness, this is exciting. We, Having just finished this intensive series around your book, The Just Leader, we're, we're taking a break, but not really, because this is very much right in line with the spirit of that series. And we're going to hand the floor over to you to be able to set up this episode for us, what they can expect, and tell our listeners what is in store for them during this episode. Yeah, this is a podcast episode that I did with the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, our friends there who've been really incredible partners as they have come alongside of us around our content related to leadership and particularly just leadership. And so I had the opportunity a few months ago to speak at their Business for the Common Good conference that took place in Denver, which is a gathering of business leaders, community leaders, and others who are thinking well about what it looks like to steward their position and their power and their resources in ways that create the common good so that everyone can win in the city. And so this podcast was a precursor to that event, and it gave me the opportunity to really walk through what's behind 1110 leadership, particularly Proverbs 1110, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, and how we think about that as we come alongside leaders. That's great. Well, I know our listeners are in store for a real treat. We're really grateful for our partnership with Denver, and we're going to include some information in our show notes if you're wanting to learn more about all the good things that they're up to out West. But I will turn the floor back over to you talking at this conference, and we will see you on the other side. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. You're listening to the Faith and Work Podcast, where we explore what it means to serve God, neighbor, and society through our daily work. Hi, and welcome to the Faith and Work Podcast. I'm Joanna Meyer, Denver Institute's Director of Public Engagement, and I'm joined today by Brian Gray, our Vice President of Formation and Director of the 5280 Fellowship. Hey, Brian. Hey, it's good to be with you. It's nice to see you too. Today we're hearing from David Spickard. He's the president of 
1110 leadership and the former CEO of Jobs for Life. Jobs for Life was a global nonprofit that focused on job training and placement for people that struggle to be employed. And today we'll hear about how godly leaders steward wealth and power. It's going to be an amazing conversation. But Brian, will you tell us a little bit more about David? Yeah, happy to. First of all, I just just want to say it's so rare for me to enjoy both a person and their tone and the manner with which they think about issues that can be difficult for Christians to engage in, in terms of how do we practice a biblical vision of justice and in the public square. And so I think David is such a winsome, theologically integrated, practical voice for the workplace on these things. Formally, David, as you mentioned, David is the founder and president of 1110 Leadership, which does uh, leadership development out of Raleigh, North Carolina, working with CEOs and their leadership teams, in essence, to help people address issues of leadership, culture, strategy, and impact, particularly in how to navigate issues of justice through their workplaces, through the, the mission and the mandate of their companies. And prior to that, he was the CEO of Jobs for Life, which is a global nonprofit doing a lot of similar work. We're going to ask him to tell us about both of those here in just one second. So welcome, David. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Joanna, it's great to be here. Great. Well, hey, let's jump right into it. David, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your career journey for context. How did you end up leading Jobs for Life? And how would you say that that experience to and within that shaped you as a leader personally? Yeah, well, I graduated from the University of North Carolina. I majored in psychology and communications, which basically meant I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do when I graduated. But you went to great basketball games. Yes, for sure. Yeah, huge Tar Heel fan. I, I did know two things. One was I wanted to marry my wife, Alice, and so we got married a year after college. And then the other was... In some shape or form, I wanted to do something vocationally to help the material poor. And I didn't know what that looked like. I actually grew up in privilege with tremendous opportunities. But for me, as I wanted to live out my faith authentically, I just felt like that was something I wanted to pursue. As I told people that and got counsel from others, mentors around that idea, they encouraged me to go and get my MBA. And I said, my MBA. Are you serious? I said, did you hear? I wanted to help the material poor. And they said, organizations, nonprofits, and others that want to engage those in, in need really need to understand business principles in order to operate with excellence. And so I took that to heart and went and got my MBA at Indiana University. Felt like a fish out of water, but put together an MBA that really allowed me to get a general business degree while also getting some experience in leading nonprofit organizations. Turns out that nonprofits don't come to business schools to recruit. Nobody told me that. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to work for a consulting company in Birmingham, Alabama. And during my time in Birmingham, I learned about this conference that was coming to Birmingham called the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA. I'd never heard of a Christian association related to community development, but I decided this is something I need to go check out. And so I took a day off work, went to the conference, and learned about this new organization that had just started in Raleigh, North Carolina, in 1996 that was called Jobs for Life. And they were working with businesses and churches to 
help unemployed and underemployed individuals find and keep meaningful employment. And it was back in the day when you went to a, a conference and the exhibit booths were felt boards. <laughs> and so I went and I tried to meet folks and I said, that is exactly what I want to do. Felt boards? No, 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 no. I wanted to actually be a part of that mission. And I ended up having some contacts back in North Carolina who put me in touch with the leaders of Jobs for Life. And after about a year of me stalking them pre-social media, they relented and they were actually looking for someone with business background to help grow the work that had started in Raleigh and figure out how we could make it sustainable and replicable in cities across the country. So they needed someone with my background. I became the director of operations in uh, 2009 and then uh, became CEO in, t- excuse me, in 1999 and then CEO in 2006. So I was there for 18 years. How it shaped me and my leadership, how long do we have? What I would say is it gave me the, you know, my work became my life in terms of a sense of calling, not in an unhealthy way, but in a way that allowed me to really thrive in my understanding of our mission and how we live that out. And I was mentored by tremendous people, leaders from all kinds of communities across the country who showed me a world I did not know, showed me a world that where people were experiencing tremendous challenges and obstacles, having to overcome those injustices that were taking place in cities. And many of these leaders were leaders of color who poured into me in ways that allowed me not to feel like I was part of the problem, but I could use the gifts and talents and abilities that God had given me to be a part of the solution. And so I um, grew tremendously in what it looks like to believe in people and their dignity, to understand the power of work and God's design for work, and what it looks like um, for people to overcome all kinds of obstacles to be all that God designed them to be. So those are key lessons for me as I, you know, not only experienced Jobs for Life, but also learned how to lead our organization, invest in our people, and help us be a, a thriving team that could carry out our mission. I'd like to know more about a recent shift that you made to focus on leadership development. And to clarify, in doing uh, job training and creation, you've been developing leaders all these years, but you've shifted towards focusing on people that we might stereotypically associate with leaders, people of great wealth and influence. Tell us more about what you're doing through 1110 Leadership. Yeah, so I decided to transition from Jobs for Life at the end of 2017. It was just, it was time. It was 18 years. I built a team and felt like God was calling me to something else. I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but so many of my friends and even co-workers confirmed in me just the gifting of coming alongside leaders and, and coaching them and helping them thrive so that their uh, people that they lead can thrive and ultimately our communities can thrive. So in many ways, I was flipping uh, to the other side of the coin. If I had spent 18 years thinking about how to help uh, men and women become great employees uh, to be the kind of people that employers want to hire, 
what does it look like then for employers to be great leaders and to be great employers and to be, a, be able to create an environment where their people can thrive, particularly people who have real barriers to work and to give leaders a real understanding and a sensitivity to what does it look like to be able to create that kind of environment and also be very successful in their businesses. So we have a couple things that we do. We, we have a core group of, of companies that we work with where we coach their CEOs and their executive teams on their leadership, their strategy, and their culture. And in, in some of those companies, we're, we're embedded. So it feels like we're a fractional chief cultural officer, if you will. And then on the side, uh, in addition to this, we actually put together cohorts, groups of business owners and leaders of influence who meet together in a peer learning environment that we call just leadership groups, where we walk through what does it look like to lead with our faith, grow in our leadership, and then also understand how to engage issues of justice and what does it mean to be a just leader. And those have been quite exciting to be, to have an idea and see how that's come to bear has been quite encouraging. I know the name of your practice, 1110 Leadership, is deeply significant. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? There is a meeting. It took us a while to get to a name of our business, but this one has really settled in. It's, it's built off of Proverbs 1110. And I heard about the significance of this verse from the, for the first time from my friend, Dr. Amy Sherman, who wrote Kingdom Calling. And she unpacks this verse very well in her introduction and then builds her book, Kingdom Calling, around this, this big idea of when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. The righteous in that verse are the sadakim, which is the Hebrew word for righteous, and that is used over 200 times in the Old Testament, and that signifies people who are just, who use their prosperity and their power and their wealth and their influence not for themselves, but they steward it, steward everything that they have for God's peace and shalom. And so that's the righteous. And then the the word rejoice in that verse is a Hebrew word, talos. I think that's how you pronounce it, T-A-A-L-O-S. It is the only time in scripture that that word is used, and it is an absolute wild party. It is dancing in the streets. This is back when I was at UNC Chapel Hill when we won the national championship. We ran as fast as we could to Franklin Street to jump with our f- classmates over fires <laughs> that people had built because we had won the, the NCAA basketball championship. This is also, it also has war connotations where it's this idea that the presser is gone. We have victory. So this is huge celebration. And when it says the city, it's the whole city, which means even the poorest of the poor are dancing wildly in the streets. Why? Because the righteous, the sadakim, are prospering. They're gaining more power, more wealth, and influence. And instead of what we would think, which is people, particularly those who are poor and, and forgotten and marginalized, would be bitter and resentful because the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. 
Instead, there's this picture, there's this vision of them running as fast as they possibly can to the street to dance wildly because they know that when the Sadakim win, everyone wins. Mm. And that is an incredible picture of vision, of leadership, of what it looks like for us to steward everything that God has given us, not out of guilt and shame, but out of creativity and imagination uh, so that our city can rejoice. And so that's honestly what we're trying to do with our work, whether it's coaching CEOs and their executive teams or working with business leaders in these just leadership groups. What does it look like to be the Sadakim? What would our success need to look like in order for an entire city or the poorest of the poor to dance wildly because we are winning we are gaining more power. We are gaining more wealth. So that's the idea behind the name. And, you know, we don't have all the answers. And I don't want to, you know, come across like that in any shape or fashion. But that's the vision that we're building our work around. David, you're talking about a vision of, of biblical justice that is, one, biblical, but it has some real implications then for how your leaders are going to think about this idea of being the Sadiqim with regard, with regard to success. So can you talk about some really practical ways about how when you're talking with people in business who may be in environments where maximizing the fiscal bottom line is it part of the at least the environmental culture of, of defining success? How are you redefining success, reframing it a bit with those you work with? Well, really good question. Well, first of all, we, we want them to to be profitable. You know, we want them to go for it, be all in. I mean, you have to be successful. You have to be profitable um, as a business. And, you know, you want to do things with excellence. And <clears throat> so, again, many people come to this justice conversation, particularly a person who looks like me, white male, who's grown up with privilege and opportunities. We feel like, you know, we are pointed to as the problem. And that people, we, we get defensive when people come to us and question our work and what we've had to overcome to get to where we are. And we just sort of want to leave all that aside <clears throat> and, and give opportunity for people to have a vision for their leadership, to steward everything that they have for God's peace and justice. So what does that look like? How do we need to be close to people in need <clears throat> and so that we can see the position that we're in as being the opportunity for lives to be transformed. Part of my motivation for doing this was when I was at Jobs for Life, <clears throat> I had business leaders come to me. They said, David, I wish I had your job. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, I mean, you get to lead Jobs for Life and you get to impact so many people's lives and see lives transformed. And I was taken back by that, partly to just appreciate my work, but also my response back to them was, you don't really understand your job, do you? Yeah. You are bifurcating mm -hmm. and separating out the way God has gifted all of us and put us all in the playing field to be a part of advancing his kingdom in the world. And we need everybody in their places doing excellent work growing and being successful in order for this whole thing to work. So this has to be much 
broader than this idea of giving back, which is what a lot of leaders think about, you know, part of what it looks like to, to be a faithful steward or live my life driven by my faith is to go out and be successful and make as much money as I can and then give, give the, give away what I don't need. And a lot of that is okay, but it doesn't go quite far enough. We're talking about whole life stewardship where this is not about what you do. It's who you are. So it's like putting on a whole new set of lenses to where you look at the world through a different pair of lenses so that every decision that you make, everything from parenting to our marriages to our other relationships to the way we lead, we're looking at the world through these different lenses. And it allows us then to have a vision for the way we can steward everything that we have for God's peace and justice. So we say, go for it, man. Like, be all in, <clears throat> but you know we ha- we do have to redefine success, and that's yeah. a larger conversation. We get on a whiteboard and we start coming up with some ideas. Like, if for example, if people in need are going to rejoice, then they need to know you. <laughs> you need to be known by people in need. So, what are some steps? that you're taking to be intentional to put yourself in a position where people in need might know you and you know them. That would be one example of what Mm -hmm. that looks like to, to pursue a different definition of success. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing too, this is maybe an assumption from the outside when you are working with leaders and asking them to be increasingly aware of, but now helping to attend to, some of the really complex social issues that are surrounding them. Obviously, it's not that those weren't there a couple generations ago, but the pressures upon leaders to think about their position in business, whether it's CSR, corporate social responsibility, or this more positive, theologically integrated vision of whole life stewardship, the pressures have to be greater on leaders to to face really complex issues because they're more in the light and they're more seen culturally. Can you... Talk about what are some of those challenges and pressures that leaders you work with sense in that. Yeah, it's and 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 more is expected of them as a result. It's they're expect you know their employees are sort of expecting leaders to engage with these issues, and we find that many of them have not built their muscles around these issues in a way that allows them to have the confidence to know how to navigate them. And there, there are several things that come to mind are things like, you know, how are we paying people fairly and good wages and still remaining profitable? How do we <clears throat> build a <clears throat> diverse workforce when we can't find people, just anybody to come and show up, but we're having expectations that our leadership has more ethnic and gender diversity and we're having a hard time finding people and integrating them into our culture where they feel safe and they feel like they can thrive. How are leaders now having to navigate gender identity issues that challenge the way uh, they believe? How do they need to treat someone fairly when they might have to lose money to treat someone fairly? Mm-hmm. What does it look like when a, a, an incident happens like a police shooting? And uh, do they say something? 
And if so, what and to whom? We have one leader who who didn't feel comfortable posting anything during Gay Pride Month, and their employees were questioning why there wasn't someone, why there wasn't any sort of voice from the company around advocating for LGBTQ community. So, and that's challenging for many who don't know how to uh, communicate in situations like that. So there's just a lot of uh, issues that are coming up that before I think um, people thought they were out there and now that they're, they're ending up on everyone's desk and Unfortunately, most of the leaders are reacting to incidents versus having thought through them ahead of time and having a proactive strategy for how they might engage with these uh, issues when they come up. Our belief is that people of faith, those should be really good at these things. Amen. I mean, Jesus was amazing. I mean, he was amazing when you study scripture about how he navigated these unique cultural lines. And what he understood was they were complex and they were nuanced. And we live in a world that is built on extremes, either or, are you on this side or that side? And things are very highly charged. And usually there's the answer is somewhere in the middle. Usually it's not either or, it's both and. And a leader who can have the skill to navigate that nuance and complexity, that's the challenge now. And, and to be honest, what we talk about when, it, when we talk about being just, we're also talking about what it means to be world-class. Like world-class leaders, if you want to be just, you have to be world-class. Um, because you have a whole different view of success. You have to figure out how to be profitable when you're having all these other issues mm. to deal with. And you're having to be really good at navigating very difficult cultural dynamics that a lot of leaders would just punt and just go back to the ways that they do it before and try to have success within that environment. And that's just not going to work anymore. I appreciate how you describe that, David, because I I know in conversations with business leaders at times it can feel like as we're inviting people into a different type of leadership, it can feel like we're implying that all of the hard work that they've done building a business or getting to where they've been doesn't matter. And, And that's not what you're saying. You're inviting them to a different way of being a leader. I have kind of a two pronged question. The first is what has to happen at a heart level um, for a leader to be willing to step into this growth process? That's the start of the process. And then what are the core competencies that you would hope that a a leader for today's social environment, what are the core competencies they need to gain? Yeah. At a heart level, I think one of the main things that a leader needs to to take, one of the first steps, is really to understand God's heart for justice and that this is really central to who he is and what he's about and that that then animates the way that we live out the, the full gospel. And honestly, it's, it's challenging for leaders to get to that place because honestly, the word justice 
is a very charged word right now. And the way people, you know, many Christians would say, we sh- justice is not a part of the gospel or certainly social justice, but it depends. It depends on how you define justice. And usually God is the first one who's defined all these words. And the more we unpack of God's heart for justice and what it really looks like and how then I can be a man or woman of justice, people, I think, would get really excited about that opportunity and then what that looks like to live that out and to experience more of his fullness. So that's one step. Another step, too, and I've mentioned it just on the side so far, is just the importance of being close, close to people in need, close to those who are experiencing suffering, those who are close be close to those who are experiencing injustice. It's really difficult to have a desperate need for God when we're not close to our brokenness and the brokenness of others. And that's why Jesus came and he ushered it in his kingdom and said, you know, what do we require of you to act justly? Uh, Micah 6, 8, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's for our benefit, not just because he's requiring us to do things and that's what it looks like to live out our faith but no it's so we can experience him and his fullness and be reminded that he's a big big god and he can do amazing things and we need more of that so that's first in terms of the heart piece in terms of the core competencies we talk about four qualities of a just leader as we go through our just leadership groups and these are the core competencies we focus on the first is Uh, Being able to see the whole playing field, that's number one. Number two is the ability to build cultural competency. Third is giving power away. And fourth is taking bold and courageous action. We could talk about each of those for a long time. Uh, this may tee up, you know, coming for the conference, Business for the Common Good. So I will unpack those four qualities uh, when I come and have the opportunity to speak. But these four qualities have shaped the way we have talked about this justice conversation. And what I would say about this is it's a journey. And there's no destination. In other words, you don't, you don't all of a sudden wake up and you're just. And yesterday you were unjust. It's a continuum and everybody's moving toward, hopefully, the just side of that continuum. But we never get there. And these qualities are sort of guideposts along the way for that journey. Mm-hmm. You know, our friend, I think our mutual friend, Steve Garber, talks about the idea of proximate justice and proximate good. We're going to get as close as we can on this side of the new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth, even when it's not complete. But David, I'm, I'm listening to you describe what you're asking leaders to go through. It strikes me as incredibly countercultural. Now, I don't mean this to, I'm not here trying to bash on culture, but <clears throat> there is some similarity between a culturally defined social justice and a biblical, particularly an Old Testament biblical justice. There's those, That's a, quite an overlapping Venn diagram. But there's going to be some places where you're asking leaders to lead very holistically in ways that might be countercultural in terms of their view of maximizing dollars, esteem, holding on to, acquiring, and benefiting from power as opposed to giving it away. So I'm hearing a lot of what you're doing is very countercultural. So to, to generalize back out, all of us face challenges 
in our work and our career. I'm wondering how is it that you are helping to catalyze change for people when that work of transformation is often so counter-cultural? One of the ways is you have to do it in community. Hmm. And we thought, at first when we thought about engaging people around this content, much of which, most of which came out of my 18 years at Jobs for Life, you know, if you just teach it, you know, people will understand. And we realized very quickly that that's not the way that uh, change happens. Because what we're doing is sort of reprogramming ourselves. There's some things where we don't even realize that are in, that's in our DNA, whether we've been discipled in a certain way or we've just been conditioned in a certain way that we just are not aware of. So we try to help people first understand and have awareness. That's step one. Two is, is to be educated and to begin to start to give new information, whether it's history or context or giving data where you just can't question that. And then you move to a place of interacting with that new information and doing that in a community setting. So interaction is important. Then having experiences. We, we try to engage folks in such a way that it's very difficult to have head knowledge without it then being experienced with people and being close to the problem. So we'll bring in speakers and others, or we'll take our groups to various places that are uh, not places that they would frequent and mm -hmm. begin to tell stories and give context for what it is that we're talking about. And then finally, you have to have a way to apply it. So those are the five areas, awareness, education, interaction, experience, and application that helps move the needle around change. I would say most of the ways in which ahas have happened is when people are hearing from each other mm. and they're having this peer interaction where they're both prompting each other and or encouraging each other or telling a story where they can relate um, to that particular incident. And you know, it's an incredible community that happens you know, when that takes place. And people are more able then to take risks because they're doing it within a context where others are, are taking the risk with them. That's not always able to be achieved, but that's the way we have been able to see change happen so far. Yeah, that's just so thoughtful and comprehensive. And I have a background in adult education, and that is awfully informed by the way adults actually learn and grow, as opposed to just dumping information on people. It's just really, really thoughtful. I'm wondering, David, how you help people grow through the discomfort of this process, because I'm sure it challenges a lot of their assumptions and even kind of challenges a person's way of being in the world. If you want to sign up, just get ready to make mistakes, right? Like, and, and that's part of it, you know, when we're not willing to take a step, we're actually saying something, if that makes sense. So a lot of grace and truth too, kind of a mixture, equal measure, both that it's okay to make mistakes and, and give opportunity for people to receive grace and to learn from those things. 
but also truth, just reminding people that we need to hold the course and challenge folks when it's easy to, to take, you know, easier to take the, the road that people, most people travel. Therefore, patience is really important. We talk a lot about how this work is slow and the work that we're doing is for our children's children's children. Mm-hmm. And, but we have to have a sense of urgency today so that our children's children's children can see the vision that we have from the work that we're doing. And so, again, that goes back to how important it is to be in community. It's very difficult to have that kind of staying power when you're alone. But, you know, all this is is going back to your you know, original ideas of what is success. You've got to really have the right expectations of what this looks like and to make sure that we're not measuring the wrong thing or have the wrong expectations so that people get so discouraged that they give up. I mean, it is paralyzing when we look around and to see mm-hmm. what's going on. And it's never ending. Is this going to happen again? Oh, no, another one. And so it's very easy for us to just punt and do something else or feel like the work that we're doing is just not making a difference. We also talk about our, you know, the steps we take are small, not just slow, but small. And we have a number of examples when we look at Jesus of how he engaged the one person. And then what happened because he was intentional about that one person. So oftentimes it just comes down to how am I going to take a step toward one person? And who is that one person? And how might I pray for that one person? So those are, those are the ways we, kind of, we navigate the, the discouragement or the challenge because it's inevitable. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, sadly. <laughs> David, I've heard I heard you describing justice fatigue, and I have felt on a Sunday morning as a part of the liturgy in the church community that I prayed for, that if we dedicate communion or the Eucharist to the special intention for the victims of fill-in-the-blank shooting one more time, like I don't know if I'll even be able to sit in that room and handle it. So there's a sense in which this justice fatigue that you're describing goes beyond organizational leaders, and it's just we all see it and experience it. But then I'm also a report one thing that we hear from a lot of leaders who don't have the organizational agency of those that you're typically working with. So they would experience that type of fatigue. But then they also say, and what can I do about it? So I'm wondering, this is kind of a final question from my end. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts for those who are in the middle of organizations. So when they're there's 200 people in my company and I'm at middle manager at best, or maybe an entry level employee. That's going to be closer to half the folks that are listening to our podcast. How do they think about some of these issues of the workplace and leadership being an aspect of interaction with justice? I would say exactly the same way. And what I would say is we've done a just leadership group in companies that we work with for employees and it's been really encouraging um, to see them grasp these this vision for leadership and how they steward what they have. And we talk about everybody has a measure of power and influence, no matter what position you're in. And what's interesting about 
this group compared to the groups that we do at the executive level is that they're typically closer to the problem or they're closer to the issues. And they actually have much more opportunity in side conversations or in relationships that they're building in day-to-day interactions that can apply these same principles in ways that are incredibly impactful. So again, you know, see the whole playing field, build cultural competency, get power away, take bold and courageous action. Those four qualities, which we went through with that, those groups as well, they, they have been so encouraged. And so for those who are listening, I hope that that is an encouragement to you all that again, we're all on this playing field in the perfect position to live this out our role and where we are is not by accident. And we need to recognize that we have the ability to be used by God to be a, a man or woman of justice in the places where we live and where we work. So I've been quite encouraged by that and want to make sure that we don't limit the way these principles and these ideas can be lived out by everyone. One of the challenges of the podcast is that we only have a brief window of time with you, David, but I'm so excited for our listeners to be able to join us at Business for the Common Good on March 3rd. It's Friday. It'll be in person in downtown Denver or online anywhere in the world, and you'll be one of our featured teachers during that time. But before we go, I'm wondering if you would offer a final word for our listeners, just encouraging, exhorting them to use their influence, their power, their wealth, and whatever form it is to live and lead more justly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope those of you are listening are encouraged today. I hope there's a measure of redeeming the word justice today, which I think is really important. We can get so sideways with that word in our culture right now, but I would encourage you just to take some steps of of looking throughout scripture and to find God's heart for justice and how central that is to who he is and what he's about and the way he has equipped us to be men and women of justice. So that that's one. And then another is typically we leave these conversations and the very first thing we're thinking is, gosh, what do I need to do? You know, I want to be a person of justice. What do I need to do? I want to do something. <laughs> I want to fix this brokenness. And I would just encourage you to change the question and instead ask yourself, what do I need to see? What do I need to see? And you'll be amazed as you start to look and watch both things in yourself, things in others, things in your communities, in your cities. Ask God to give you eyes to see the things that break his heart and how that might well up inside of you, real compassion and uh, excitement to use the gifts that God has given you to be a part of that work of restoring and, and making your city rejoice. It's possible, believe it or not, and we're all part of his team, and he'll never let us go. That's awesome. And, and by the way, we win. <laughs> we're, we're on the winning team. He's come to make justice and righteousness and bring in a new heavens and new earth where we'll live in an eternal city that is rejoicing and having a party for eternity. And that's where we're headed. And so all of this is meant to provide a preview of what's to come for all of us. David's 
Vicar, thanks for your generous and insightful leadership. I can't wait to see you in March and continue this learning with you. Thank you so much. To learn more about 1110 Leadership, visit our website at 1110leadership.com. That's the numerals 1-1, then spelled out T-E-N, leadership.com. That's 1-1-T-E-N, leadership.com. There you'll find more resources to equip you on the journey of becoming an 1110 leader. You can also get connected to our growing leadership network. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. To help others find us, you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.